Digital Gonzo, episode 136, recorded Wednesday the 19th of June 2013, Hancock. Okay. Hancock's latest act of so-called heroics has once again enraged city officials. I can smell that liquor on your breath. Because I've been drinking, bitch. Hancock, I knew you'd come. I do public relations. People don't like you, Hancock. Oh, my God. I look like I care what people think. I think you're wasting your time with this guy. Right now, there's a DA trying to figure out how to come up here and put you in jail. I say you go. Hmm? He's not gonna go. People take you for granted, you know? We gotta make people miss you. You don't move, your head going up his ass. Can't watch day five, and crime is still on the rise. You got a phone call. It's the chief of police. He says he needs your help. You have a calling, you're a hero, Hancock. You're going to be miserable the rest of your life until you accept that. Life here can be difficult for me. After all, I'm the only one of my kind. You deserve better from me. I will be better. I ain't wearing that. What? It's a little tight. Hey, cop! I need you to end this. Do I have permission to touch your body? Yes! It's not sexual. Maybe on a different day. Get me out of here! That's it. Make it look hard. Uh. This is going to be a challenge for me. We're looking at a film that is not loved, not even largely liked. It's been derided, dismissed, and largely forgotten. It holds a meagre 41% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm in the unique position of thinking it's great. Really great. Not only that, but it's my favourite Superman film to date, and that includes Man of Steel. So if you're not a fan of this movie, allow me to paint you a picture of what I'm seeing. I know it's going to be hard for a lot of you. All you will remember is a mess and the feeling of two mismatched halves shoved together. I'm going to uncover why they match perfectly, why it's not messy at all, and why it's one of the greatest superhero films ever made. I am Jason Bateman. You are the good people of Los Angeles. Let me tell you why Hancock is important to all of us. Things just got real, and this is exactly what we need. This is perfect. Right now, there's a DA trying to figure out how to come up here and put you in jail. Bitch can try. People take you for granted, you know? We gotta make people miss you. People don't like you, Hancock. I do. Major spoilers abound, but frankly, you may still be better off listening to this show first if you haven't seen it. In this rare case, not knowing what's going to happen actually hurt it for the majority of critics didn't affect the box office however the budget was 150 million and due to the immense likability talent and thus bankability of will smith it took 624 million back it could have snagged a sequel i'm glad it didn't first let's hear the master himself underline the popular perceived weaknesses of this film now bear in mind before listening that mark kermode 
doesn't like superhero action sequences. He didn't even like the final section of the Avengers, so this perspective needs adjustment depending on where you stand on those. I also believe that like everyone else, he missed the entire point of the finale, which we'll of course be going into later. Bear in mind that when he reviewed this film, it was sandwiched in the 2008 summer release schedule between Iron Man and The Dark Knight. And that's about the toughest competition imaginable. And it's easy to see how this film got lost in the adulation of the other two. Okay, so Hancock is meant to be the superhero movie with a difference. The difference is that, uh, as played by Will Smith, he is a drunk and a layabout and is generally looked down upon by the people of Los Angeles who he theoretically protects. The first time we see him, he's sleeping on a park bench. Little boy has to come and wake him up and go, Oi, Hancock, you have to go and help some people. So he can do all the superhero things. He's got super strength. He can fly. But he is basically a bum. And very, very early on, he saves Jason Bateman from uh, dying. And Jason Bateman is a PR guy. And Jason Bateman basically says to him, Look, you need me to sort out your life. The idea of a superhero needing a PR person, that's quite interesting. Some of the Superman comics, the original Superman comics, did deal with that area slightly. But it's a Spider-Man issue as well. You know, he's looked down on by the, by, by the newspapers. It's an anti-media thing. But So there's an interesting movie going on in there. And then, and then, and then, as always happens with multi-million dollar blockbuster superhero movies, it's like halfway through they go, oh, I can't be bothered with this. We've spent millions of dollars. We've got to have some big, uh, big fights. And there's a plot twist at which it is revealed that somebody else is also a superhero. We're not going to go into who because, obviously, I want to keep whatever tension there is. And then it's superheroes versus baddies. Now, admittedly, you get people like Eddie Marsden, who's, a, I think, a good character actor, and you have... He was the, a taxi driver last time we saw him. I know, yeah. And wasn't he, wasn't he, isn't he, he a was, great actor? He was great. He I can't great. imagine him as a superhero. No, although, funnily enough, as a taxi driver in that film, he is... Enraha! Enraha! Enraha, Poppy! Enraha! That was good. That, I think, for both of us, was the best thing about Happy Go Lucky, wasn't it? Yep. Because... The rest of the film was slightly challenging. Yeah, and we just it's, agreed on something. And it's upbeat optimism. We have. That's why I'm sort of slightly flanning. You must no. be wrong. But in the case of Hancock, I was very, very disappointed that what happened was you got, you know, the setup that's interesting and strange and is going to do something with the, and then literally it's a, almost exactly on the halfway time mark. They go, no, can't be bothered. Going to do a superhero movie. And this has become the rule of superhero movies. You know, when I, when I reviewed, um, Iron Man, I said it's like two-thirds of, of a good film. In the case of Hulk, it's exactly half a good film. All the Hulk stuff that's good is the stuff with Edward Norton. All the stuff that's bad is the stuff when he's the Hulk, and then there's, he meets the Super Hulk, and then they start fighting each other. And I am pinning all my hopes on the new Batman movie, being because what happened before with the Christopher Nolan Batman movie was he managed to make a multi-million dollar, huge, big epic, but which all the way through kept its eye on the prize, all the way through knew that it wasn't just enough to have big scenery and big explosions. It had to be character-driven. The whole thing had to, you know, fit the mythology properly. And what we've seen so far with the superhero movies since then is just this constant wimping out. It's, I'm going to do something strange, I'm going to do something, I'm going to, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm going to do robots hitting each other. Iron Man got to two-thirds of the way through and then, I think, lost the plot. This, it's almost exactly the halfway mark, and it's so disappointing because it's just like you kind of invest a certain amount of hope and a certain amount of trust in it, and then it just goes, you know what, let's just have superheroes thumping each other. First up, let's take a look into what this film could have been. It is based on a script written in 1996 by Vi Vincent No called Tonight He Comes. Now, I've read some articles that lament how different the final movie was from this inception, but let me furnish you with a synopsis and some choice readings. 
Hancock is a washed-up, self-loathing, alcoholic superhero. He lives in a seedy motel where he drinks himself into what would equate to death for the average person. But since he's invulnerable, he just keeps going. He also feels compelled to save people and be a hero, even though he's brutal and filled with hate. His ethos, and this is very important because he states it clearly, is a man's got to do what a man's got to do, with no mercy, no compromises, and no regrets. In his motel, he smokes, drinks, shits, fucks prostitutes, and jacks off, sending ballistic semen out like shotgun blasts, hence the single entendre title of the screenplay. He meets the Longfellow family, Father Horace, a pathetic security guard, Mother Mary, is the picture of maternal nurturing, eight-year-old son Aaron, the target for bullies at his school. Aaron watches his father wrestling with a ketchup bottle and losing. Hancock teaches Aaron to smoke and becomes obsessed with Mary. He's looking to be saved and she's the one to do it. He kidnaps her and Aaron and flies them to an abandoned textile factory where he drunkenly attempts to rape her. The police surround the building and Hancock responds disproportionately by massacring them, tearing off arms, legs and heads. The sight of one of these severed heads traumatizes young Aaron. After he has murdered these men, he goes back to his raping plan. Horace arrives to win back his wife, who is swooning in the corner. He fights Hancock with a rocket launcher, and the building collapses. Hancock roars in despair and tries unsuccessfully to shoot himself in the head. Horace goes to pull Mary out of the rubble. Now this is important. The penultimate page is blank. So if anyone can tell me what happens after that, I'd like to know. Because the last page takes place later after Hancock has left the family alone. Aaron is still terrified that he will return, but watches his parents have sex. The end. The following are actual excerpts from the screenplay. And I'm going to get Sharon to read them. <laughs> because she just does so well at this kind of thing. Tonight, he comes. Fade in. Black. It's everywhere. It swallows the screen. And so we stare into a sea of black. I saw a severed head once. Except for the paleness, it looked healthy, well-fed. The end came abruptly, you could tell, because the mouth froze in mid-sentence. Shh, the curled lips attempted. Like it started saying shucks or surely or shit happens. Your eyes don't forget things like that. Like you don't forget the sound animals make when they're humping. Primal. Raw. They endure in you forever because the senses have a brain all their own, and they recall long after you've succumbed to the la-la of forgetfulness. A pregnant beat. Sometimes when it's dark out, so dark it's black, I'll see him beat. And it starts all over again. From this blackness, a streak of lightning splits the night sky. Exterior, sky, night. We're in the eye of a storm, an angry mass of clouds raging across a black sky. It brings rain and thunder and the swirl of a howling wind. An entity emerges from this moist darkness. It flies through the weather and advances into our scope of visibility. A flash of lightning erupts and it illuminates the sky. We see the approaching entity as it hovers before us. It's a man. It's a man, plus, it's a superhero. 
garbed in an elastic dark grey outfit, a faded red cape extends behind him, thrashing against the wind and rain. Black silk shirt with a maroon silk tie. (laughs) This superhero, 30, unshaven, dishevelled, worn, a face chiselled with mileage. How much mileage does he think you have at 30? In the eyes we can see his soul, intense, fierce, an exposed nerve, snagged in a fish hook. He hangs in the air, tired, rain-soaked, pissed off. He stares down at the earth below and he beholds the saturated visage of Sheep's Head Bay, a seaside Brooklyn neighbourhood. And from the bowels of his very soul, this superhero belches a thunderous roar. He pivots in the air and dives towards land. He slices through the downpour, arms extended, body erect, engulfed in the dimensions of his cape. The ground approaches, fast. He accelerates, as if to embrace it. Velocity sucks up all remaining space, and there is impact! An explosion as he rips through the street surface, penetrating the asphalt, headfirst. Penetrating the asphalt? Headfirst, no less. (laughs) Debris and concrete spew from the ruptured orifice as he disappears inside. Almost sexual, isn't it, Smithers? Almost. There is an expulsion of subterranean pressure and it launches nearby manhole lids from their spots. They bounce and clang down the street like loose change. I'd, I'd just like to point out at this point that the um, the chap is using very, very liberal scattering of capitalisation, even when it's patently not really appropriate. Manhole lids from their spots. Yeah, why does that need to be capitalised? As in, like, anyway. guys, we're going to need some lids. So <laughs> just get onto the prop, people. Yeah. The rain continues its onslaught. Interior, apartment, night. Rain sloshes against a kitchen window, where the sink is. Not far from the kitchen table, where the Longfellow family sits, dinner before them. Horace, 35, reading like a Daily Mail article, (laughs) (coughs) leans over his plate eating his meal. Here idles a man of diminutive frame, bespectacled, placid, as harmless as low-fat milk. He sits opposite Mary, 30, frenetically appropriating food. What? What? <laughs> what? what? Is, he, is he casting aspersions on the way this poor woman eats? <laughs> a gentle beauty entwined in maternal angst. See, now I've got this image of a gentle beauty entwined in maternal angst, troughing whatever she's got on her plate. In Played by Kristen Stewart. Oh, dear. <clears throat> she is estrogen with an attitude. <laughs> <laughs> A meek little Aaron, eight, slouches between the folks. A black eye tattoos the left of his face. Aaron stares at the damp plate, finding no humour in eggplant. Right, this is... um, Horace has just said something nice to his son and come out of his room, but he's on the way to work. Mary inches closer. Passion oozes from every pore. She nestles up against her husband. Horace stands uncoordinated, pressing his hands against her back. He is gentle, but as effective as an armless masturbator. (laughs) (laughs) Mary caresses his neck, moves her lips to his ear, enraptured by the moment. And out of nowhere... I'm late. Mary snaps from her trance, unshackles her hold like she almost expected it. Right. Coffee's by the door. She marches back into the kitchen. Horace stares at his feet, shakes his fists, mentally kicking himself in the face. (laughs) He settles for the door, grabs his jacket, coffee thermos, a quick look at Mary, and he's out the door. 
Cut to interior kitchen night. Mary against the kitchen sink. Her thin cotton dress clings to her body, still robust with energy. Her breasts so full they could pop a boner in your dead uncle. What the f- Again. You stay away from my dead uncle. Stage direction. No Wait. one's going to see this except yeah. the director who can have you fired. Or quite possibly arrested. And while the storm rages outside, Mary burns in a feverish sweat. The swelling steam and running hot water combine to saturate her chest and face. She drips. Mary gazes out at the wet abyss. <laughs> Which wet abyss would that be then? <laughs> Possessed by some inner longing. This guy missed his calling. Mm. Black lace novels. Um, Black right. lace novels are better than no. that. You should write the synopsis on adult toys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hang on. Because um, this, is, this is stuff that's not supposed to be seen, so... <laughs> Focus, so. The battery power in this thing <laughs> can pop a boner in your dead uncle. <laughs> and I'm sure the way that he uses capital letters would work quite well with that packaging. <laughs> yes. Interior, bathroom, night. Hancock stares into the mirror, a face in the latter stages of deterioration. Oh, it's a zombie movie now, is it? And in disgust, he swipes everything off the sink. Reporter. What are you doing in there? I'm calling the police. Hancock drops his pants. Straight arms the wall with his left, and with his right, latches onto his magnanimous member. (laughs) Oh my. Outside and beyond the door, the reporter has her ear pressed against wood, listening. So there our superhero stands, bent over a bit, yanking up a storm. His body convulses under said stimulation. He growls. Cue for the reporter to back away. Jesus! Hancock stiffens in full throttle. Full throttle. He growls up and into a fevered pitch, and boom! We hear a baby explosion. <laughs> no, no, it's baby oh, explosion. Baby explosion. My mistake. You can see how I'd be confused. <laughs> he didn't use capitals. Well, that's true. The reporter leaps back. Beat. The bathroom door flies open. Hancock emerges, buttoning his pants. He brushes past her, finds the window, and he's off with a gush of wind. Uh. (laughs) The reporter turns back to the bathroom, looks inside, debris everywhere, in shambles, smoke, and in the ceiling, a gaping hole, seething still from the launch. Now, on a personal note, I'm somewhat relieved that the film did not turn out like this. Actually, that's something of an understatement. The script underwent several revisions in the main overhaul that introduces everything light, funny, accessible, heartfelt, poignant, intelligent and humane was incorporated by Vince Gilligan. This man changed the core story from one about notions of the criteria for masculinity, which is what Tonight He Comes appears to be about, to being about isolation after deep connection is lost and finding that connection again. Gilligan was the creator of a little show I've heard occasional praise for named Breaking Bad. Could you guys get used to this or what? 
How'd you two meet? Um, I was married once before. First wife. Uh, she died giving birth to Aaron. Another dinner. Uh, but, um, so there I am. I'm, I'm with this beautiful little baby. I don't know what the hell to do. And I was in the supermarket, and I'm in the baby aisle. And I've got a brand of diapers in each hand. I'm staring at them. I don't, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get through the day. And the angel <laughs> sees me. She knew. She, was, she gave me this look. And even in the trance I was in, I knew that somebody somewhere was throwing me a little rope. Starting that day, you really put my life back together, right? You're drunk. So. <laughs> okay. What about you, buddy? You're from another planet, aren't you? No, man, I'm from Miami. You didn't come in on like a meteor? Nope. Woke up in a hospital, first thing I remember. Government hospital? Yes? Experimenting on you and no regular old Miami emergency room. Come on. Yeah, my uh, my skull was fractured. They told me I tried to uh, stop a mug game. Somebody knocked you out. I guess I was a regular guy before, and when I woke up, I was changed. Uh, the hospital nurse tried to put a needle in my arm, and it just broke against my skin, and then my skull healed, and. Like an hour. Doctors were astounded. And, uh, they wanted to know my story, just like you, but I couldn't tell them. I don't know who I am. Amnesia. You know, the blow to the head. Yeah, well, that's what they figured. You don't remember anything. Uh, only thing I had in my pocket was bubblegum. Two movie tickets. Boris Karloff, uh, Frankenstein. Uh, but no ID, nothing. I wanted to sign out. The uh, nurse asked me for my John Hancock. Uh, so I actually thought that's who I was. How come I didn't hear any of this? I didn't read about it in the newspapers? Well, it, was, it was probably in the papers uh, 80 years ago. 80 years ago? Oh, I don't, I don't age. Is it? That's nice. Gotta wonder though. What kind of bastard must I have been? And nobody was there to claim me. I mean, I'm I'm not the most charming guy in the world, so I've been told, but nobody? The Rejected Hero. To really understand this film, you have to watch it twice. All the detail comes from understanding who Hancock and Mary are. The being now known as John Hancock has lived for 3,000 years, maybe more. There are hints that Mary has been around five to 7,000. He has spent periods as a hero, leaving the regular people around him in awe. Mary mentions ancient Persia and Egypt, where they would most likely have been worshipped as gods. The caveat for their kind is that they had to remain alone. 
if they spent time together, they would grow old and die. Since Hancock and Mary are only in their 30s, this tells us that of those three millennia of existence, they have spent only a fraction of a percentage of the time together and happy. This equates to centuries on end of isolation. Hancock's Wolverine-style memory loss was a byproduct of damage taken during a beating while vulnerable. This means that it is not a natural part of their life cycle. He is supposed to remember everything, just like Mary. As humans, we aren't built to do this. Beyond 30 years and things get very hazy for me. When we hit 60 or 70, most of us have started either glossing over the past, making the happier moments shine and hiding the bad parts, or else forgetting vast swathes of events and people. The human brain is not designed to process that many situations. If the Hindus are right and reincarnation is real, it's the reason we die and are reborn, to wipe the immediate slate clean and add another focused area to the vast canvas of the soul. But imagine having to do all this in one go. Looking back and back and back and still recalling people you knew in ancient Sumeria, speaking in now dead languages you can still process. Now imagine that after living for all of these years you suddenly forget everything. Your body and mind are designed to endure and just keep going like a juggernaut, but your sense of self goes back at the absolute most 2.7% of your life. And you're alone. If you knew who you were and knew that you had to be alone, and why, it would be back to business as usual. Robbed of that understanding and feeling the broken ghost of a connection you'd only just managed to forge, but not who it was with or why, you even have two movie tickets to prove someone else was there. So you do what people do when they're depressed and isolated, drink and pity yourself. This means that when you suddenly use your powers to help at some inopportune moment, you're clumsy, you screw up, you cause more damage than you avert. And this maintains itself into a cycle. You never sober up long enough to break it. You can't die like Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas. Nobody is able to make enough of an impact on you to change this, and soon people stop trying. They reject him because nobody remembers the hero he used to be. That man has passed out of living memory. If this had taken place at an earlier time, there would have been more of his kind to find him and help him. The fact that Mary avoids him for 80 years informs heavily on her character. The Details Being a huge fan of the Brian Michael Bendis comic Powers, I was able to immediately grasp and absorb the immortal and eternal hero concept. In book 7, Forever, Bendis tells the story of two men who have existed since before the dawn of our species. The first issue pays homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey, with the two ape-like men competing wordlessly for a mate with bloody consequences. They depart after neither can kill the other and wander the world, meeting again and again in a Conan-inspired age, a Crouching Tiger-style mythical China, Golden Age 1930s vigilante Chicago, and the Silver Age of costumed superheroes, before finally pitching up in modern times, having lost all traces of the original reason to clash. This hero also cannot remember his past, but in powers this is the natural way of things. Bendis concluded that the mind cannot contain that much time and experience, that it would put a person so far out of touch with the average man on the street that they would be useless as a hero. They would be Dr. Manhattan. Once again, I thoroughly recommend Powers. If you like cop shows and superheroes, both with a hard edge, you will find much to engage with. On the subject of living an inordinately long time, keep an eye out for the Woodstock poster on Ray and Mary's bedroom wall. 
It's likely that it was put there to highlight Ray's wide-eyed optimism, but it's also possible Mary was there. The set designers filled Hancock's trailer with images of historical figures he would respect. Abraham Lincoln on a $5 bill taped to the fridge. Tiny pictures of JFK and Miles Davis, whose careers John would have seen rise and fall. Mary has pictures of the people she met and shared intense friendships with. Joan of Arc, Marie Curie, Mary Shelley, Janis Joplin. Her home is full of plants and musical instruments, life and ancient, ancient books on healing. When Mary and Hancock are at the dinner table eating meatballs, Ray asks if the heating is on. In Hancock's trailer, his jiffy pop starts to expand when they argue. This implies that their being together creates immense heat from the energy transfer. And the weapons-grade ejaculation scenario made it all the way from the very first script into the extended cut of the film. Hancock picks up a groupie in a bar at the beginning and on taking her back to his trailer, tells her that she needs to get off before he does. Her reaction afterwards is thinly disguised terror. She goes to the bathroom and escapes out the window, bringing the audience down from sniggers to the sobering realisation that being super pushes everyone in the human race away from you. As to the eagle on Hancock's hat, the pictures scrawled on his trailer and jail cell walls, and the one adorned on his eventual costume. The eagle often symbolises strength, courage, farsightedness and immortality. It's considered to be the king of the air and the messenger of the highest gods. Mythologically, it's been connected to the Greeks with the god Zeus, by the Romans with Jupiter, by the Germanic tribes with Odin, by the Judeo-Christian scriptures with those who hope in God. In ancient Egypt, the falcon was the symbol of Horus. In medieval and modern heraldry, eagles are often said to indicate that the Armiga, person bearing the arms, was courageous, a man of action, and judicious. It has also been used as a flag standard for the Roman Empire, the Nazis, and is the creature most commonly associated with America. Uh, I'm alright. I'm okay. All of you people... Blocking the intersection. You're all idiots. You're the one that threw the dude's car at her. And what took the train? Why didn't you just go straight up in the air with the car? Yeah, why not? straight up. You've obviously injured that poor yeah. woman. She's right. She should sue you. You should sue you. Yeah. Okay, well, you should sue McDonald's because they fucked you up, all right? Smell that liquor on your breath. I've been drinking, bitch. You're a drunk ass. You think you're such a We don't need you in this game. Some superhero you are. Fly off. Shut up. Should people understand I'm alive? I get to go home and see my family. I should be dead right now, right here. Yeah, he could have gone straight up. Obviously, he should have gone straight up. You know, and I was upside down for the train, but, uh, no, thank you. Thank you very much, Hancock. Thank you. Thank you, Hancock. You're not flying by the valley, are you? Conflict. By far the most contentious aspect of the film is the handling of conflict. We can all relate to the speeding truck getaway shootout at the beginning. Spider-Man seems to deal with one in every movie. And Hancock's slapdash handling of the situation is an amusing spin on the superhero mythos. The next 30 minutes or so are a conflict of his behaviour with the reactions of the people. 
This is Hancock's Half Hour, the time of the film where every adult has settled into this being about the concept of superpowers rather than the usage of them. Then, during the bank robbery, we get more awkward behaviour as he adjusts to being Superman. Even John Powell's score parodies the classic John Williams theme. Got perimeter set up on the north, east, and south sides. West side is open. What? It's a little tight. What you got? Bank job. Got at least eight hostages, four bad guys. I got an officer pinned down and we can't get to her. They've been spraying the hell out of us all morning. And they got some kind of heavy artillery. 50 caliber or bigger. I don't know if that matters to you. I'm good. Oh, um... Good job. Good job. Really good job. His handling of the robbery deliberately shot closer to producer Michael Mann's heat and less like the average Saturday morning comic book antics is brutal and to the point. But we get that he started seeing a much larger divide between the people he's helping and the ones he's stopping. This blurring of the line, the universal hate he's received, is what has perpetuated the social conflict exacerbated by the literal, messy, destructive conflict. The point where a lot of people shut off, deciding it was simply another superhero smashing up a city movie flick, actually only covers a four-minute period and makes absolute narrative sense. She's being secretive, evasive, and aggressive over their past relationship and demanding that he leaves. He feels incredibly drawn to her, but infuriated by this behavior, and unwilling to go with resolution within his grasp. They fight like any two of us would, only since they're super, the world around them reacts with appropriate exaggeration. It should have been shorter and less fun, but their duty here was to a crowd who had paid to see a superhero comedy, not a relationship drama. So there's invariably some heavy lifting, only unlike Superman Returns, both supers get to really cut loose on one another. It can't work! Always ends the same way! Persia! Greece! Brooklyn! Brooklyn? I've never been to Brooklyn! I have put up with your bullshit for the last 3,000 years and I am done! I don't know what you're talking about! Done! You look I like... don't know what you're talking about! I am about. happy, okay? Finally, I am happy! Look you're at me! I don't know what you're talking about! I hate to burst your little crazy lady bubble, but it must not have been all that great because I don't remember you. Call me crazy. One more time. Cuckoo. However, it ruined the film for too many to be worth including. Wasted days and wasted nights. I have left for you behind. For you don't belong to me. Your heart belongs to someone else. He hurt you. 
didn't he? Oh, use your words. How did it make you feel? Sore. Bad. Bad. It's because he took your power. And you have to get your power back. And no one will give you your power back. You have to go out and take it. You understand me? We're gonna go find Hancock and get your power back. Hancock has no supervillains, so he inadvertently creates one of his own. Eddie Marston's Red is a proto-Lex Luthor, very charismatic and persuasive and intelligent, but self-absorbed. When John removes his hand using powers beyond human abilities, it creates resentment in an already twisted mind and a determination to bring this godlike being down to his level and then destroy him. But we've seen this villain conflict play out. There's nothing new here. It's merely misdirection. The real enemy Hancock needs to overcome cannot be punched or dismembered. His own self-absorption. It's one that his abilities actually make it harder to fight, since they reduce a lasting sense of consequence. He's alone, he has been for thousands of years, and that's not going to change. But the past 80 years has made him fear and hate this isolation, like nothing we can comprehend. To win, he must perform a self-sacrificial act, taking himself away from Mary, permanently. Choosing instead of this deep connection to devote himself to the world and its people. Finding sustenance in humanity, even as he saves us. This is an existential victory that in many ways outstrips even the mighty Dark Knight. Because it's not about the monster of chaos that the Joker brings or the fall from grace of Harvey Dent. This is a recognisable part of all of us. No Superman story has ever rivaled this, because Kal-El has not been brought down to our level. In body, yes, but never in soul. Hancock is not the paragon. He's more like us, at our most pathetic, than any other hero. And not at our worst. He's not a murderer, he doesn't exploit or lie, but all of us have felt rotten and selfish at some point in our lives. Pulling ourselves out of this is for some the hardest thing to manage. Some never do. But it speaks to the human condition that we always want to aim for the sky, even if that desire is buried under layers and layers of our failure to do so. I'm not saying it's better than the Dark Knight. Because <coughs> that would be mental. <coughs> it's just the existential victory. Yeah.
Okay, so joining me for the roundtable segments, I have Sharon Shaw of the Do Try This at Home podcast. Good evening. And Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. Good day, sir. One of the things that, that I felt about uh, near the, uh, the end of the movie, like Hancock's Redemption, is not only does he have a newfound um, motivation, mm. he's gotten himself back, that person that he was before his amnesia incident. Yeah. One of the things that Mary stated was he was always a hero. He was a selfless person to begin with. Yeah. And his ordeal of waking up and having that feeling of he was such a bad person mm. that nobody would want to be there for him changed essentially who he was originally and he finally got that back at the end of the movie. I wonder actually if part of that, because I... I was thinking about the the nature of these immortals, mm-hmm. um, and although Mary does give some explanation of of how you know why they were made the way they were, I don't think you really get a fully satisfactory explanation for for that mythology. Yeah. And one of the things that occurred to me is it might possibly have been the case that that they were created as immortals in order to help and support human life. Um, by, you know, whatever the supreme consciousness is. But because they had immortality, like you said in the essay, it would be very easy for them to become disconnected with the human race and not use their gifts and the things that they could do in service, you know, in, well, in service, basically. Um, and that the idea of them, if they're drawn together, they start to age and die could basically have been an insurance clause because the way Mary puts it across it's almost as if that was what was intended to happen that they would put together in pairs they would age and they would die and that would be the natural order of things but I actually think it's not I think that that was put there to keep them apart because if they got very drawn to each other and became very focused on their own relationships they would neglect what was effectively their duty so, but Mary's done that anyway. She concluded at uh, some point re- fairly recently, um, because you can actually see pictures of her doing humanitarian aid in on the uh, in her house. That she was going to narrow her focus and just focus on being really, really nice and helping one small family rather however, than the entire world. Look at what that one small family is trying to achieve. Look at what Ray is trying to do. That is true. It's quite she's possible that, that exactly yeah. she, when he says she <clears throat> saw him in the supermarket and it was like she just knew, it's entirely possible that what she just knew is this man is going to change the world. I can now shift my focus to support him and help him to do that. I don't think she's massively drawn to superheroics herself. No. Essentially, she found someone who wants to save the world without being that forceful nat- that forceful nature, trying to help people rather than stopping those who want to harm others. Exactly. It's trying to eliminate the issue of that arising to begin with. Yeah, I mean, she obviously has a great deal of admiration for Hank, the es- essential... Uh, protectiveness of Hancock's nature, but she is also clearly, if not repulsed, at least frustrated by the fact that he does it all through very physical means. Mm. He's dealing with 
um, aggression in the world, which All is something... All he knows is flying and strength and invulnerability. Well, indeed. But the, at the moment, <clears throat> and certainly for the foreseeable future, there will always be situations in the world that need to be handled that way. But I think that the very fact that that is true frustrates the hell out of her, and it's something that she'd rather deny if she can and certainly find other ways to get around it and, and to um, to approach things that when she's talking to about Aaron's conflict resolution it's all about talking yeah. um, you know there's that she has no support whatsoever for this idea of just kicking him in the nuts and running away it's basically she's got a resentment for violence because of how long she's been alive and what she's seen what happens when people try to use violence to solve all their problems mm, that's right although at the same time i think that uh, a big part of her anger at hancock is actually self-blame because yeah. she knows that not not even necessarily that she left him because at the time it was essential and they both needed it or at least he needed it to survive yeah but she um didn't seek him out over all these years when it became apparent he didn't know who he was and explain it to him and she was the single person left in the world who could have done that hmm. all right we started Spaghetti Madness about two years ago. We do it every Thursday, and we have not missed a Thursday in... Ever. Yeah. Oh, ever. That's a long time. Yes, sir. Very long time. Mm. Mm. That's some good meatballs, boy. Aaron. Mama's calling you. Yes, Mom? No. His name is Aaron. Hey, Aaron, pal. How was school today, huh? Fine. Yeah? No more problems with that bully Michael? Michelle. Michelle. Right. No, no, I know. It's French. Yeah, Michelle Hancock is this... Hancock? Michelle is this neighborhood bully. We've been trying to teach Aaron a little bit about conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, turn the other cheek, all That's that. exactly mm -hmm. right. Well, mm -hmm. well just uh, never turn that one, all right? Uh -huh. Never let them punk you. Got it. Okay, Aaron, eat your food. Well, you deal with bullies, you take your right foot, bring it right up, catch him in his little piss pump. <clears throat> You don't have to do that, honey. Well, okay? Right. You know, seriously. That's a good idea. You aim straight and make sure he can't use that thing for nothing but a flap to keep the dust out of his butt crack. Okay, please, okay. just stop. Michelle is not a man. Okay, he's a little boy. And his parents happen to be going through a really, really bad divorce, and that's why he's acting up. And maybe you don't know this, but not everything in this world gets resolved with brute force. Not everything has to be banged, screamed, blood, more blood. You know, just destruction. She watches so much news that sometimes it gets to be a little too much. I just want to touch on um, the the whole um, when they pair up they become vulnerable thing mm -hmm. the f I like the idea that Sharon stated that um, it, it seemed like it was a fail safe but when, one, one of the things that you see like a constant occurrence when someone is immortal or can't be harmed it, one of the things they long for is that vulnerability and the fact that by coming together they become vulnerable actually draws them to each other more because they get to lead a more normal life and they get that um the release of death yeah and the release of the response from the responsibility that they've been saddled with because i mean superman in every instance has been doing his thing for what 20 years tops yeah. and as I've, we've said on the previous podcast well the one thing he really wants is to be just like us so 
that seems like absolute mercy uh, to to somebody who's three thousand years old and so weary. The fact that they can get weary seems like cruel and unusual punishment. Mm. Maybe that's part of it. Then not just the idea of of um, preventing them from. Uh, focusing on each other because it's assumed that they would always choose immortality and life over coming together, living a life and dying, but just a way for them to end their time when they feel that they've had enough. Yeah. And you do actually get a little bit of that in I know we've discussed it at length before, but in Superman 2 basically to be with Lois he has to become vulnerable he has to give up all of that power, yeah. all of that ability, which means he has the responsibility for looking for looking after humans taken away from him. Yeah. He can't do it anymore. And I think that's part of what this is about with Hancock, that the overriding need to help and to protect is ultimately stronger in him than the fatigue and the exhaustion and the, I've had enough of this, all I want to do is love somebody, grow old and die. Um, that he needs that being a hero more than he needs the the normality. Um, but I think that losing his memory of all of that and not knowing that that was how he worked, yeah. that's part of, or the way I see it, that's part of why he then lost himself in this, um, you know, self-loathing and resentment and, and drink because... He, he didn't have any memory of the fact that this was a conscious choice he was making, that he was choosing to sacrifice um, his ability to be with somebody who understood him in order to help people. And that would have been a constant reminder to him, I'm choosing to do this, I'm doing this because it's worthwhile. All he knows is that he's driven to do it, but he doesn't understand why, and he doesn't understand the impact that it's having on his continued existence. And I think you're spot on, Jerome, when he remembers it all, or when it when Mary reminds him of it all, and it brings that back to him at the end. It's I don't think it's so much that it's revitalised his desire to help people. He's clearly always had that, but it's reminded him why he wants to help people and what he's choosing to give up, and that gives him more of a... Uh, more impetus to carry on doing that. Mm. Okay, let's talk about its flaws because it seems like we've just been yakking, yakking on about how brilliant it is. There's, even if it, you know it's extremely appealing to us, we've got to be able to observe its flaws. Yeah. What sucks about this film? What could we have done without? Oh, bitch, get out the way! Get out the way, bitch! Get out the way! Oh, bitch! Passes. I could probably yeah. have done without that. See, they—that <laughs> was the thing. They were going to take that out because Peterberg thought, "Ah, it's just a slapstick, scatological gag. I don't like it. Let's get rid of it." They showed it in test screenings, and the audience were cracking up for so long. They were like, "We got to leave it in <laughs> because it's a crowd pleaser." People like it. That's why they put the music for Sanford and Son behind it. I'm sorry, it's just I kind of like the, the fact that he constant he said it before. I'm going to put your head up his ass, and like you don't think he's actually. Oh, he's just kidding. 
But it's that one guy. It, the whole thing is sold by that one guy's reaction of, oh, shit. And he, like, he holds his, just watch on the trailer or just when you see the film again next, there's this one white guy who just goes, Aah! it's a, like a jackass level of stupid kind of gag. But that's another thing. The film's really funny. We've been going on about all this portentous stuff, but the whole way through it's pitched as a comedy and it, it, it like, Hits, hit, 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 over and over again for me. I laugh. It's it's the reason why I, it's my favourite Superman yeah. film because so often Superman feels derived of humour. It's more of that like light-hearted chuckle, chuckle. Oh, we're all good people. Let's have a ruddy good time. Sort of laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a ruddy good time. That's Balaga. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is, um, this is blackly humorous, and I don't know, they skirted the line with being still suitable for, for family audiences. The, uh, the, the, the ballistic semen bit they took out, that was for a good reason. That's me trying to change the world. Unfortunately, not doing real well. Come on. Let's get to you. This stuff was on YouTube. Now, everybody loves a nutty buddy, I get it. But this doesn't work, sir. Hey, give me this. Children. There's a camera on my face. You ever uh, put on an apartment fire, Ray? No, I haven't done that. I'm in PR. My ass was hot. All right. How about this? This is Walter, the gray whale. Everybody remembers him. Stuck on the beach, North of Zuma. Along comes Hancock. Remember that. Yeah. Greenpeace does. Walter does. This all kind of gets redundant after a while, but my basic diagnosis of your fundamental problem is do you want to hear it? No. You're an asshole. I know. I call it like I see it, though. It's not a crime to be an asshole, but it's very counterproductive. Not a crime, but you are an asshole, don't you think? Be careful. All right, how about this? I've been thinking about something. This kind of goes to how you present yourself. Come on, really? It's the middle of the day. What springs to mind when you see this? Homo. What about that? Homo in red. Norwegian homo. I'll give you that. Let's move past the comics. Let's get into something a little bit deeper. I think... That deep down you behave badly because you are lonely. I think deep down you want people's acceptance. Come on now. You save people's lives and they reject you and so you reject them back. And it's a moment. And we're going to switch that cycle. We're going to start fresh, start anew. This is outstanding. If you turn some of this power into willpower. Almost. One of the things that does like it happens whenever in all superhero films a lot of the time but specifically in Hancock the fact that Hancock doesn't have a supervillain sort of thing it's mm. like why why do these people when like they know who Hancock is yeah they, they've seen him fly in and bash it's through he has like, very brutal methods and they still think I'm gonna take this guy <laughs> in I the mean, Wolverine costume the prison one's the worst yeah um, they, he's literally put them in there. 
they know he's only in there voluntarily, yet they still decide to try the whole tough guy thing. Hmm. Actually, that could be seen as a failure in the film. It doesn't really make much sense that everyone... Mind you! Safety in numbers, there's so many of them, I think they just don't believe he could possibly... <laughs> You're locked in here with me! Yeah. The problem They've is once all the others see him do that one act... Have you noticed how like the group all kind of steps back yeah. <laughs> as if to say... Yeah, we're not getting involved. <laughs> Actually, having said that, speaking about Watchmen, there isn't really the idea of history in Hancock. Even though he says he's he remembers back 80 years ago, it doesn't really seem like he's been a superhero for 80 years because I don't get the public's reaction to Hancock with him being a real-life superhero who's clearly been action acting for so long because that would have informed upon comics. If he'd been around and doing a superhero thing for 80 years, that outstrips even Superman. That means that when Ray shows him those comics and they, uh, they couldn't even be bothered to like pay the licenses to actually have the Superman comic, even though um, the group he does call him Superman, interestingly enough, and they have these sort of like made-up, crappy Malibu-looking comics. Vax. Vax. Uh... It's not like Watchmen where they give you a straightforward this is what happened, then this is what happened, then this is what happened, then this is what happened. We don't get a direct time when Hancock started doing his thing. He just seems to have been doing it for a long, long time and people conveniently forget. Um, I, I suspect he moves around a lot, though. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, I, ultimately with real-life people like him, in well, with a real-life figure in the world doing that, that would have affected comics. And here's the thing, though. The public are really ready for him to be a superhero. He is just on the verge the whole time of being able to do it right. He just messes up over and over again. So when he finally puts on the uniform, they're like, yeah, good job, Hancock. Thank you. Thank you, Hancock. And when, you know, when he's in New York and at the end and he has come full circle... It's almost like the public's just been waiting for him to step up for this role properly. That's the one part of it that I think is possibly a little bit um, on the naive side. I don't think people are that willing to believe the best mm. and to, to give people more and more chances. What seems to me to be normally the case is when people have seen you fuck up time and time and time again, they basically take the attitude of everything you do is going to be a fuck up. Yeah. Uh, what did you? Who did you compare him to when uh, he was uh, doing his public apology today? He was like, he's saying, oh, I'll, oh, I'll, try, I'll try to do better." He yeah. was just like Tiger, Tiger Woods. Yeah. <laughs> I know I fucked up, kids. But it's yeah, just that whole idea of of when um, sports people or, or people who are in the public eye have done something which everybody acknowledges is bad. That mm. if they stand at a pulpit and hang their head in shame and tell everybody they're very sorry I'm and they sorry. won't do it again. <laughs> Then, like Exxon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, obviously he's doing it for a very specific reason. Yeah. After, like, the first time he gets, well, the time that he gets called out of prison, because, like, finally a threat that nobody can handle has come up. Hmm. And, like, immediately after, everybody's singing his praises. Like, you'd think there'd be a little bit more, you know. Now, you saw one bank robbery that puts you ever so slightly out of debt. To be fair, though, it was a really big bank robbery and there was a lot yeah. of C4 involved. Yeah. It's something that... It was careful. It was shorthand, really. For That should really have been a montage sequence of Hancock solving a lot of problems. Yeah. But then again, it's in LA. They're quite faddy. <laughs> 
<coughs> lost interest. And he does he does achieve several things. You know, he saves yeah. the the cop. He um, frees the hostages. I'm going to touch your body now. It's face. not sexual. <laughs> It's not that you're sex- not sexually attractive, though. You're yes. actually a very attractive... Yes. <laughs> the, that's the thing. The fact that he's played by Will Smith, you, you invest in him straight away because uh, you've seen Will Smith play a lovable character so many times that when he does play an asshole, uh, even in Iron Legend, you're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt over and over again until it turns out he's off his rocker. And even then, at the at the very very end, he, it's it's apparent he had the best intentions. He gets away with things that say Bill Fickner would not. Like, who is this asshole? Um, quick question. Yeah. Um, just because you throw a chocolate bar very very hard, wouldn't would it be able to knock someone out or? Um, just fall the force apart. Um, with the force, I think it would. Yeah, it, it, it would, would shatter cool, like a shotgun blast against would, his chest. Yeah, but, it, but the impact would the uh, impact would potentially yeah. knock them down. Yeah, I think so. Because if you think about it, if you drop a, a relatively small object from an extremely high building, which is about the only way that it could build up the force that Hancock can throw with, mm. it can kill somebody. Okay. Yeah. I like that scene because it's um, it's the first time he feels pain and gets shot and feels vulnerable uh, since 80 years ago. So it's like a horrible memory comes flooding back to him. My bad. Everybody all right? He is in that cell. What's your name, boy? Michelle. Oh. Do you you know Aaron? Oui, le petit seul. Well, uh, seems to be a pretty good kid. Uh, just want to ask you to lay off him a little bit. Why, asshole? You're going to stop calling me that. Asshole. That's not my name. Asshole. Call me an asshole. One more time. How about you, Thickness? Goggles? Hancock! Son of a gun, I knew you'd come. Ask Mary. I had a feeling. I said he heard me. Yeah, and he's yeah. ready for a change. Right, this is right, great. Yeah, Did you do this? You come in yeah. a little hot? Yeah, yeah. I'll meet you in the house. This is a great place for us to start. I know you don't drive. Oh, damn it. Oh. All right. You're all right. You're all right. You're all right. Stop crying, punk ass. Go ahead. Not okay. Okay? Really not okay. This is some of the stuff we're going to work on. How do you think that conversation is going to go down with his mom? Landing like that in the streets, also on the uncool side. No, that was was already like that when I got here, right? That whole street, by the way, was entirely fabricated. It was was easier for them to build a street than to take up a a, filming space on a residential area, especially at night where they, they get quite pissy with you. So it's, it's, it's quite an astonishingly good job they, they did there, making a house and then destroying it. 
Okay, I'm probably wrong about this, but um, how many times did Hancock wreck the pavement and by the next day it was sorted? Well, the next time it's sort of sorted. Lots. At least twice. He When he takes off the first night, he wrecks it a bit, but when he lands, he wrecks it a lot. I'm literally just nitpicking at the boat because... And it, it probably gets wrecked again when he yeah. um, when Mary throws the fridge yeah. out through the wall as well. I think the twist really was not worth it because so many people were, were expecting it to go in one direction and then it mm. didn't. And But like, like I said before, if you watch it the second time, watch Mary. The moment she sets eyes on him, she's regarding him and it's like sort of like do you remember do you know how much do you know do you know anything do you remember me it's at all totally when are you going to find out it's the core of the story yeah so it's yeah for it re- i'm assuming everyone listening now is at least considering watching it a second time if they haven't if they uh if they haven't ever seen it before they'll be like this sounds like a fucking weird ass movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> It is, but yeah, it, it, it is. plays into the whole superheroes as gods hmm. thing that I that absorbs me completely. So I, I was sold very quickly on it. I think with a different soundtrack, if you listen carefully and watch what's going on, they make the sa- the soundtrack, especially in the first third, overly fun and jolly, and um, like sort of hey, this is great fun. You're going to have some good, you're gonna have good time tonight. But you could have played a lot of the sort of the, the quieter, more thought provoking music earlier. And people would have established the tone quicker, but I think we, that they sort of it veers back and forth, and, and people were sort of being taken. It's like going on a roller coaster in the dark; you don't know which direction it's going to veer, and people weren't happy when they came out. Sometimes, see, I have difficulty. That's the, a lot of the things that you pick out as stupid or over the top, or you don't like. I like because it is supposed to be a comedy, mm. so the inherent tone allows for it, for it in my mind, at least. It's really not like your average summer blockbuster. It, it, I think they've put a, a veneer, a sheen on it to make it seem like a summer blockbuster, but really it's it's a, a character-based relationship drama. Again, much like Superman Returns, but they did a much better job of um, of making it as accessible as possible to, to mainstream audiences and making them feel like they were on a, a fun ride. I do understand what people mean about there being a slight... Uh, disconnect in it Um, and I I think there are a lot of these uh, subtler points that we've Mm. been talking about do get missed because the slapstick is so over the top or or, you know when it turns up and the the light comedy touch is is there and so you're not looking at the things in the background and um, you know I mean when we were looking at the the making of stuff the all the bits about what they fitted the house out with that Mary had accumulated over for her years of existence um, you know she's got all of these uh, ancient pieces of artwork and um, books and, and all this kind of thing that she surrounds herself with and it, it kind of put me in um, uh, when you mentioned it about Highlander mm. and the idea of um, the the immortal life she does what Conan Cloud does. She surrounds herself with antiques and, and things that give her a sense of how long she's existed. There are things in that room that are nearly but not quite as old as she is. So that gives her a, a sense of tangibility about herself and the, the long time that she's been alive that obviously nobody else could yeah. could have. But you, you, you look at the way um, 
people who've lived a, an average human lifespan fill their house with things from their childhood and, and you know, photo books and um, ornaments and things that they've had for years and years. Because like old people's them. houses look like they were decorated in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I dread slash yearn for the days when there are going to be dusty iPads all over the place. I mean, kid, grandkids are going to say, you going to throw out this junk? It's not even holographic. Oh, I've got to sort through my granddad's memory stick collection. I didn't even know people didn't like this film until I started talking about it on the forum, and everyone was like, you like Hancock? Why? It's rubbish. And then I started saying, okay, why? You don't like it. Why? It's a mess. Okay, why is it a mess? It doesn't feel right. It feels mismatched. Okay, why doesn't it feel right? And it seems like the overall feeling for it is just sort of, oof, I don't know. It just it just wasn't much of a muchness. Like it, it's it's not going to be massively powerful to a lot of people. It is just going to be sort of a disposable popcorn flick with a big, very memorable, well, memorable that it was there, but not memorable what happens in it. Superhero smash up in the middle, but like I said, it's only four minutes of it. It re- and it ends in her lying on her back screaming, "I hate you!" It's a fight. It just happens to be a fight between superheroes. Maybe that's why people haven't um, connected with it much, because although there's a lot of people have said they don't like it because of the action, maybe what they don't like is the fact that there isn't enough action. No, I don't know. I think people... The thing that most people say is that it started going in a good direction, the whole superhero PR thing, and then it just chucks that out the window because the whole immortal hero and she's an immortal hero thing uh, was spoiled. By the way, some DVD covers have photoshopped Hancock standing there in the, in the average sort of standing pose looking all you know, like you're ready for action and then they photoshopped in Charlie Theron with sunglasses on looking like the Matrix right behind him and it's like dude spoiler warning <laughs> but then again I suppose they're just trying to put a different spin on it hey kids she's a superhero too just so you know um, but but yeah then, then they, they pulled that on you and I think it's like from dusk till dawn in that it's two completely different styles of film, suddenly with like an immediate obvious changeover. The changeover comes uh, at the point where she kisses him and then throws him through the wall via the fridge. Um, and in Fidustal, my, my I remember showing Fidustal Dawn to my father, and then he he was totally with it until the point when the vampires came out, and he had no idea that was going to be the case. And he went, oh, this is like that film with the guy with the guitar case with a rocket launcher in it. I went, yeah, funny that. I do understand that some people might don't like the sudden shift, well, the shift in tone to the movie, but... Yeah. I also it's, it's why I love it. Yeah. But that happens in life sometimes. You think things are going in a certain direction and then something happens completely out of left field and suddenly your life is going totally another way. It sounds like we're making excuses and it sounds like we're blaming the people who didn't like it. Well, you know, you should like it. There is no reason why you should like it and you're totally within your rights to say it's a total mess. But I would say, go back and watch it again might be a little bit neater than you thought. And it's an hour and a half. No film's an hour and a half these days. Fuck me, I just went sat through Superman of Steel. My ass went to sleep, got up again, and made me breakfast. I didn't even want to eat it. Fuck you, what 
back, I'll shoot! Get back! Get back! I'm not playing! Get back! Get back! Damn! Hands up! Where you come from? All right, relax. Just just tell me what you need. Tell them cops to turn them. Tell them to take the guns out for me. All right. Tell just, them to take the guns up off for me. Just take them off. Just take them off, guys. Throw your weapons. You're going to get us out of here with that tight-ass Wolverine outfit on. Now let's make it happen, asshole. So I don't know what it's going to take for a Superman movie to outstrip this. Um, I actually did like Man of Steel, but I think that it's going to need a Dark Knight level of follow-up, touch on ground that Hancock actually covers. And it does it so deceptively as well, because Hancock makes itself seem like a great big feel-good action comedy, and it's actually a lot deeper than that. But I would say Vince Gilligan, creator of uh, Breaking Bad, took a Fuck awful script. I read the whole thing today. Tonight he comes. It's dire. It's horrible. I, it, it, if I sat and watched this film late night on Channel 4 in 1997, I would have been disgusted. And I'm amazed what they actually managed to rescue from this. Akiva Goldsman was the co-producer. He's the guy who wrote the scripts for Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Thankfully, went nowhere near Hancock itself. And obviously, Michael Mann had a big influence as well, because he's that kind of the the serious star, and Mann was only interested in doing a film that seemed like it actually could take place and actually could happen. Very few moments, in the apart from the head and the arse, uh, very few moments in the film seem like they really are in the realm of fantasy. I think the fact that the emphasis of, of what the uh, central protagonist is tackling is a real human issue mm. and not a big dragon or a, you know, horrendous supervillain or, or anything like that. Yeah. He's, he's ultimately, like you say, he's, he's trying to do battle with his own temper um, and his own frustration. And that's something that I would have thought a lot of people... Can, can relate to quite strongly. I mean, I, one of the things, one of the scenes that I love, my, one of my favourite bits in this is actually the um, the therapy scene in the prison. Mm. Oh, yeah. The last one where he, he actually starts talking. And just that sense of these men who have obviously got similar issues themselves... They can't pick up buildings and hit people with them, but they obviously all still have a lot of aggression in them and anger and inability to express that in a way that's not destructive. And they are all incredibly supportive of him and, and just, you know, basically, yeah, we can relate to that. We're, we're here for you. And that's massively powerful, mm. I think, anyway. Because it's all brought together. If In my mind, they're brought, brought together in, like, a montage of him slowly, like, bringing down his walls and finally getting to the point of sharing that it's a breakthrough for him. Mm. That's one of my favorite scenes. Like, he's, he's had that internal, um, struggle and he's finally come the, not completely the other side, but he's made a decision. Yeah. Yeah, because it does emphasize the fact that, um, turning that kind of thing around is, Unlike what Hollywood movies would often like to present us with, it's not 
a revelatory moment that all of a sudden, you know, one day everything's terrible and then you realise what's wrong and then all of a sudden everything's fantastic again. Getting better and getting over that kind of state of mind is a process. It doesn't happen all in one go. Yeah. You have, you know, you can have the revelation and still have days after that where, you know what, I still feel like shit, I still feel like hitting things. Yeah. becoming mortal it's us being close to each other it's never happened this fast before you have to leave the further away you get from me the better you're gonna feel you'll start getting your powers back and you'll be flying and breaking things and saving people before you know it Like I said, we were built in pairs. And when we get close to our opposites, we lose our power. Why? So we can live human lives. Love, connect. Grow old. Die. What happened to us? Summer of 4 BC. We were becoming mortal like now. They came after me with swords. You saved me. 1850. They set our house on fire. You pulled me out of the flames. 80 years ago. We were living in Miami, and a new movie was playing in town. Frankenstein. And after, we walked down Flagler Street, and you took my hand, and you held it so tight. They attacked us in an alley. so much blood they wouldn't let me ride in the ambulance with you and by the time I got to the hospital you were awake but you didn't know me so that every time we're together they come after you through me You're built to save people more than the rest of us. That's who you are. You're a hero. 
the insurance policy of the gods. Keep one alive. You. To protect this world. The Reluctant Hero One of the absolute strengths of the film is the realistic push towards superheroism that Hancock experiences. There's an established order that society in this film seems to accept. Heroes can be firefighters, policemen, soldiers, all bound to wear a uniform signifying their role. A superhero cannot wear baggy shorts and a sweater, a beanie cap and sockless, filthy sneakers. He must wear the outfit like a badge of office, a message of intent. I have my shit together. I know what I'm doing. I will do my level best to fix this. That is what a uniform says. The direction is intimate, with documentary-style steadicam zooming close into faces to catch nuance and unspoken feeling. Jason Bateman excels with an easygoing demeanour that defies scripting and seems almost entirely ad-libbed. Much of the groundwork for Ray's character has already been laid down by Bateman's appearance in Arrested Development as the similarly hapless, well-meaning and often frustrated Michael Bluth. Hancock has spent so long thinking only of himself that he has ironically lost all pride, aside from a selfish, angry, hurt child inside that reacts explosively when someone calls him an asshole. He is self-loathing and has no sense of worth, but he is not humble. To transition this wreck of a man into someone capable of Thor-like levels of heroism requires a humility to ease away the resentment. We never get that in totality because changing yourself takes time, more than a 90-minute movie can contain, even with montages. This isn't about preparing one's body for a feat of sport, it's about repairing a man's soul. There are three factors that contribute to this and give us the hero we need by the end, even if much of his coming to terms with who he is and who he can be again takes place in the interim period between the moon jump and New York. Firstly, Ray's immense, unshakable faith in him. Not once does this man let John down. Not once does he give up. Ray is a naive but deeply good man, and that level of altruism begins to rub off, giving John the symbolic heart to aspire to. It's significant that Ray is a widower. He's gone through a life-ruining scenario that would make most of us lose our faith in whatever we previously held faith in. Somehow he emerged from that with optimism intact, most likely thanks to Mary's sudden appearance. Secondly, Aaron's unconditional adoration. In the face of all reason to be afraid and disgusted with this crazed, drunken, disastrous hobo, the child sees only a hero waiting to happen. He doesn't process this like an adult would and take Hancock for who he is now. He takes him for what he should be happily sitting with him in jail just to give him spaghetti and meatballs as a present, bestowing his favourite dinosaur toy. The actions of a well-meaning innocent towards a parent undergoing troubles they can't possibly comprehend. Thirdly is Mary, the key to his past. She explains and contextualises the pain John has felt all this time. She shows him the scars on his body, each one earned in selfless defence of her. It's subtly implied that the fact that they were an interracial couple in at least one deeply intolerant time may have led to their persecution. This puts an extra spin of tragedy on two people who have struggled to find a place together, free of the selfish and the hateful. It underlines how fleeting these times of happiness truly are. In doing this, she reminds him that he has been loved, intensely. She reinvigorates his self-worth by giving him back the man he's lost. His adorning of our moon with Ray's all-heart logo at the close is a statement to the planet that he will not lapse again, a constant reminder to us all that he will try his best to be an example and a controversial step towards changing the world that we need.
talk about Take those pictures down Check it out Truth or consequence Say it aloud Use that evidence Race it around There goes my hero Watch him as he
Jacob.